0: The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to Patreon.com slash The Writer It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's Patreon.com slash The Writer
2: Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I say, get it down, then get it good. And I really think that's an important one. Because if you say to yourself, I've wanted to write a novel for 30 years, it is going to involve three characters. It's going to be a love triangle set in the Italian Holocaust, and it's going to end up, and there's going to be uplifting at the end. It's way too daunting. But I go to that uh, Hemingway quote, which is, Right, drunk, and it's sober. You know, I, I, I don't. I know I'm not even a drinker, but I like that idea because what you have to say to people and to yourself is, don't be afraid. It's gonna be all right. No one has to see it. No one will know. Just, as Anne Lamott says in Bird by Bird, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. Just get it down.
0: Greetings and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you prolificness, prosperity, and peace of mind per usual. New York Times bestselling author and Edgar Award winner Lisa Scatolini spoke with me about what she learned from literary lion Philip Roth, imposter syndrome, and her latest, Eternal. Lisa's a best-selling author of 33 novels. She's gone from law school standout to writing chart-topping legal thrillers over the course of her prolific career, has sold over 30 million copies of her books in the U.S. and been published in 35 countries. Her latest is Eternal, and her first historical novel, a departure she calls the culmination of her life's work, is described as a sweeping and shattering epic of historical fiction fueled by shocking true events. Good Morning America said of the book, her expansive World War II-era historical novel follows three childhood best friends, as love, loyalty, and sacrifice mix and their beloved Rome falls to the Nazis. Lisa also writes a weekly humor column with her daughter Francesca Saratella for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which have been adapted into a series of memoirs. Stay tuned after the interview for a sample of the audiobook from Maternal, excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, read by Cassandra Campbell, Eduardo Ballerini, and the author. In this file, Lisa and I discussed her favorite rejection letter, Why writers just need to get it down, then get it good. How the identity of a writer changes over the years, her unique research process, why your sentences need to justify themselves, and more. Stay calm and write on. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And we are back on The Writer Files, and I am thrilled today to be joined by a very special guest. I've got the best-selling author, Lisa Scottolini joining us. How are you faring today, my friend?
2: I'm very excited. I, I'm, <laughs> I wake up excited, though. It might be the caffeine, but, <laughs> but thanks for having me,
0: Kelton. <laughs> it's a, truly a pleasure, and of course, um, we do often... Extall the virtues of um, coffee and uh, what kind of caffeine are you uh, enjoying?
2: God, I'm so glad you asked because I am a Dunkin' Donuts freak. So I actually get Dunkin' Donuts extra cream, extra sugar every day. And I swear to God, it is my secret weapon. It's the only reason I can get any writing done at all. It's like <laughs> in <some cup>. it's
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I think we can end the episode right there. It's been a pleasure um, now that we know you're <laughs>
2: I don't know, I'm going to tell you everything. You'll
0: never shut <laughs> up. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get into um, your latest eternal in this fantastic uh, historical novel that you've written and um, that is out now as of uh, as of this uh, date uh, as of the date that this will be published. But yeah, I want to dig into your superhero origin story as we do with so many um, <laughs> renowned authors and kind of turn the clock back a little bit because you know going back to even law school, um, maybe around the time, and you've talked about this at length, but the time that you took this, uh, course with Philip Roth and, um, yeah, how, yeah, from there kind of to, um, number one, bestselling author and and award-winning author who's now written, I believe 33 novels, sold 33 million copies of your books. Um, how did you get here? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the short version. <laughs> really good
2: luck. The answer is really good luck. And uh, I mean, I hope people do take heart from, because I had so much rejection. I really couldn't get into print at all. My favorite rejection letter was from a New York agent who said, uh, we don't have any time to take any more clients. And if we did, we wouldn't take you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I, I, I know, I met him later. I wanted to hit him, but I didn't hit him. Um, you know, I think, well, I, I guess my origin story is that I was a, an English major at Penn. And it sort of leads to this book. I was lucky enough to take this course with Philip Roth. Can you believe that? I still can. And this was ages ago. Like this is the Jurassic. Honestly, this is the '70s because I'm like ancient. And uh, it was it was a course that was a seminar. There were only fifteen kids in it, and he taught us about the novel for a year. Just we went through novel after novel and talking about what makes novels work and what doesn't, what why they work, why they don't, what's important. It's just incredible. And I secretly always wanted to write a novel. But I was didn't my family didn't have a lot of money and I knew that I wanted to make a living and had to. So I went to law school. Like in those days, if you were good in English, you went to law school. If you, and if you were math, you, were, you went to med school. So long story short, I went to law school and loved it. And uh, but when my first divorce happened, I found that I was had a, a young daughter and was a single mother and was a trial lawyer and thought these things are not going to work, especially hmm. since I loved being home. I wanted to be home with her and I didn't have any alimony or anything like that. I was, In other words, I was screwed. And I think it's important that people know, learn that literary term early <laughs> because bad things happen and you will get screwed or you will screw yourself up. But the bottom line is I said, you know, Lisa, you had that course. You always wanted to write a novel. You cannot get broker than you are. Maybe you should try to do it now because you can't work because you want to stay home to raise your kid. And that's when I got, you know, started writing and sending out stuff and got rejected everywhere. I couldn't even get rejected, honestly. And then after about five years of tr- struggle and debt, my first novel was, uh, I sold it to for It was a paperback original. So I want people to know, like, people don't even know what that is. It's a book that's not published in hardcover. I couldn't get a hardcover deal. and But it was enough to start to pay back s- some of the debt and support me and my daughter. And it, I've built this career through the grace of these wonderful readers who have come with me book to book, as you say, 33 books in about 30 years, and also nine works of memoir, which are kind of funny, like Erma Bombeck humor. Yeah. And I think all writing is writing. And all writing is good. And whether it's published or not, it all helps you write. And it all makes you better. And I since weirdly, bring us to this moment where I had never forgotten this Philip Roth course. And he introduced us to the work of Primo Levy who was an Italian chemist who actually was swept up in the Holocaust because he was an Italian Jew and lived to write a memoir called Survival in Auschwitz. And I was like, blew me away. And I was like, how did I not know about this? And started this sort of 40-year obsession with what happened to Italian Jews in Rome. And when I found out about the sort of event that happened in October in 1943, I said, you need to tell that story. Like you're mm. overeducated. You've been to Rome a million times. You don't know it. None of your friends know it. Nobody you talk to knows it. And it, well, I was obsessed. And I said, okay, maybe after 33 years, you actually have the chops to do this. Because I knew I was going to do it. I just never felt, you know, Sandra Sandberg in her book, Lean In, talks about how women never feel ready. Mm-hmm. That's how we hold ourselves. Back. I'm not ready. I need to practice. I need to know more. I need to read that. Every, everybody writing probably goes, oh, if I just uh, did this research, that would be all the, and then I'd have the answer. And would be. None of that's all. It's just, it's just a feeling of insecurity, which we all have. And I have all the time. And I basically said, well, you're not getting any younger kid. So you better write that book now. And that book is eternal.
0: Amazing. So you do admit to having a little bit of imposter syndrome, even today, after all, you right. know, you're, you're no stranger to the bestseller list.
2: Yeah. No. Um, Oh, yeah. I, I, I was a no stranger to imposter syndrome. I am no stranger to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think this um, this imposter syndrome piece, which we've talked about with a neuroscientist on this show, which I'll link cool. to. Um, but yeah, it's something that everybody experiences. It's a, it's a it's a not an uncommon thing for very successful people, especially very successful um, authors, to experience.
2: Well, I also think what's important for people listening is to know that we all sit down at the paper, at the computer with a blank page. And so it's something we learn from the inside out. So I think of it, I think there probably is an imposter syndrome at work, but what I think of it is, can I do this? Can I do this? And also the problem with that is that the answer is that the thing you're trying to do is really, really hard. It is really, really hard to write a novel. And so you go, well, I don't, I, I don't know if I can do that, or I can write a thriller. I can write a legal thriller. Can I write a domestic thriller? I don't know. Try. I can write in a woman main character. Can I write in a man? I don't know. Try. Um, I can write domestic thrillers and legal thrillers. And can I write humor? Yeah. Can I? Okay. So you just try each time and you're basically, you know, having like on the job training in public and you just make yourself try stuff. And I have all kinds of little mantras. I say to myself, I say, get it down, then get it good. And I really think that's an important one. Because if you say to yourself, I've wanted to write a novel by, for 30 years, it is going to involve three characters. It's going to be a love triangle set in the Italian Holocaust, and it's going to end up and there's going to be uplifting at the end. It's way too daunting. But I go to that uh, Hemingway quote, which is, write drunk and it's sober. Mm. You know, I, I, I don't, I know I'm not even a drinker, but... I like that idea because what you have to say to people and to yourself is, don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. No one has to see it. No one will know. As Anne Lamott says in Bird by Bird, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. Just get it down. Philip Roth said, now it was weird because I had this great seminar with him and it was a year long. And you would think, wow, she really got to know Philip Roth really well. That's completely untrue. I've never said a word to him outside of class. None of us did. He actually held us off to a certain extent and wanted us, in fact, to call him Mr. Roth, which was weird. Like in those days, you called your teachers Ellen or whatever, (laughs) but he's Mr. Roth. So So what I know about him is only from sitting in the room with him for a year and also what I read about his interviews. And one interview, he said so many helpful things. But one thing I always remember is he said, don't judge it as the writer. Your job is not to judge it. Your job is to write it. And the corollary to that is if you're judging it while you write it, you will not be able to write it. And I know because I've experienced that. Oh, my God, this is going to suck. This is going to be bad. People are going to say it's too sentimental. Whatever, the, whatever. You can't do that. You're going to get killed by the critics What or no one will read it. You that you, That's just paralyzing. So you have to just find a way to overcome that voice or set it to the side. I'm a big set it to the side person. And. Mm. Work regardless. Act as if it's not there. Whatever the mantra is, you tell yourself. Sometimes it takes therapy. I had ten years of therapy. Whatever it takes for you to proceed, despite the negativity in your head, and also how hard this task is, and break down the task into first draft and editing draft, and then it will become less daunting because you look at eternal. I mean, I look at this book and I go, "Wow, this is." I'm proud of this, but I don't know what it looked like before, so. It isn't what it started life as. I handed this 1,000-page manuscript to my editor for the first time ever in my life. And he was like, what? And I was like, isn't it great? You know, I mean, I just was like, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, we're going to cut it down. And then I thought about it and reshaped it. But my point is this. The finished product is daunting. It doesn't start out finished. It starts out as a blank page. And we all suffer, suffer, suffer.
0: Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and right on. It was not easy. I hope you had some help.
2: No, I just, what I did was I laid it out on the floor and said, like sometimes I say to sentences, justify yourself in the second mm. draft. Like I, I do, I say justify yourself because that's what Ross said. He was like, why is the sentence here? What purpose is it serving? So then I just started doing it to chapters, just writ larger. I said, well, why is this chapter here? Because I had to lose a lot of chapters. And I said, you know what? This chapter cannot justify herself, so she has to go. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you were going to say something.
0: Oh, I just was going to lead with, you know, from, of course, um, the legacy of Primo uh, Levy. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. To, to, um, of course, the literary lion, Philip Roth, um, and your interaction with him and that great picture you have of, of being in his course was pretty cool, too. I
2: took that picture. I took that picture.
0: I know, that's so cool.
2: I know, because I was on the yearbook staff, and I was like, guys, like I take a course by with Philip Roth. They're like, who? I'm like, he's a famous guy. They're like, okay, if he's a famous guy, you can take his picture. <laughs> and I did. And I don't even know if they use it in the yearbook, but I, I have it, and I'm really happy that I do.
0: Yeah, it kind of captures his uh, essence there.
2: Yeah, that's how it was, too. He never moved.
0: He just yeah. sat there. And, and now to um, this, you know, this labor of love of yours, um, this kind of, as you put it, this culmination of your life's work which is a departure for you as a, you know, both a humorist and of course best known for your legal thrillers. But this historic, you know, I think to me, historical fiction seems like the most daunting. Um, And then to intertwine these, this, um, you know, the stories of these, you know, characters kind of just uh, skirting the, this, this incredibly destructive and, and dark time in history for this city Um, that, you know, talk a little bit about the, 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 um, not only the Genesis, but just kind of, you know, how you put it all together from a a research standpoint. And then of course your kind of love letter to this city that also kind of plays a character in the, in the novel.
2: Yeah, no, I think I, so since I had this thought, I've been kind of researching it, you know, for like 40 years, honestly, and just collecting anything and, you know, Watching the movies and also reading a lot of fiction of the time, because I really wanted it to sound, you know, there can't be anachronisms. I mean, it has to be real. I have that sort of, that's my tenet. That's really important to me. So that that it grounds the fiction. So I went to Rome and I went in October because that's when this big event happened. I I did dumb stuff like I even bought the typewriter that Elisabetta in the novel, who wants to be a writer, that she uses. And it was interesting because it wasn't that expensive I got on eBay because you need a (laughs) 1930s Olivetti. I'm like, Lisa, really? You You know, you're like a little obsessed. You get a little crazy and obsessed. But I live alone. And now you know why I'm divorced twice. You know, like I'm like, get really into it. And um, like, try being into it for 40 years. It's crazy. But when I got that typewriter, first thing I saw was that the keys were white. And I would have said, would not have known that and I would have gotten that wrong and I don't want to get things wrong and also I felt the connection to her like I listened to it I heard the sound it make It's not like other things I could play it for you if you wanted and it um <laughs> and I was like this is a little magical so your your job is to get the research and figure it all out and immerse yourself in it but really you're gonna it's still a character it's still living her life and they don't know what's to come and so I really wanted the you know, why the good Italian stuff up front matters is there's a great quote by Dante, which I'm going to slaughter now. But the idea is that there's no greater sorrow than to remember how happy you were in prior times. Hmm. You know, oh, God, that was so that was so great. And the when you think about Italy and the times I've been to Italy and I'm Italian American, so I kind of identify. Then this the food, the tomato sauce. I just had a pesto for lunch. You know, I, I got this food's so good. I was served a pizza in Italy, that not a fancy place, right? A pizza place. I cried. It was so good. I actually grabbed <laughs> the waiter and said, This is so good. He's like, lady, get your hands off me. Like, I I was just, you know, like food's so good that you cry that you want to grab someone good. you taste this? And don't you feel that somewhere with a book? Oh, you need to read this, a movie, you need to that feeling that makes you want to connect to like, and that's how Rome is beautiful. And it's got this great thing going, which was my big insight for myself. Um, I'm not sure this is the answer, but I'll share it with you, which was, I said, you could sit there and you see, you know, you'll see Roman ruins and you'll see. I learned the word palimpsest, which is, do you know what that means? But I'm like, what is this? And so what it is, is this in the in medieval times, monks would write on parchment, you know, like of animal skin or something. And then they would have to write over because they didn't have that much of it. And they would try to erase it, but they couldn't erase it completely. So that whenever you read stuff, you could see what was underneath it. Hmm. And so a palimpsest is a visible layer of time. And when I was in a room, I was walking around going, you walk by ruins and you walk by something brick. And then you walk by something marble. Then you have that wonderful you know, uh, plaster walls that are so soft in these faded colors and if you go in october which is when i did because that's when this main event happens in this book the light is very golden and the city is a wash and you you know you have the chatter and the great italian character and the food and the wine and the music and all of that and so i wanted the novel infused with that italianness you know italian is italiana it's the italianness of it and When you feel that in the beginning and then it starts to dissipate as fascism comes on (laughs) and then ultimately Rome is occupied and Rome and food matters in this book because it mattered in Italy. And when all the fields were bombed, you know, Italy never realized the bombing campaign was horrific in Italy and the allies correctly realized that if we bomb the crap out of Italy, they'll they'll fold and that will weaken the Nazis. And that's exactly what happened. But the south of Italy was really almost destroyed, which is where the wheat fields were. And so people didn't have pasta and people were starving, even beyond rationing. And then when the Nazis came in, they weaponized food against the Jews of Rome. And so all of the food matters. So you, when you were deprived of it, you think back. And that's that Dante quote. How great was it to eat this meal? And in my research, what I learned, which also was my light bulb moment, was that although we know that Rome is the seat of Roman Catholicism, I had not known about the Jewish ghetto there, even though I'd been there many times. And I had not known that the Jewish ghetto, the Jewish community in Rome is the oldest continuously existing Jewish community in Western civilization. Yeah. Like what? Like, well, 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 well. Do you know what I'm saying? So then you go, that exists right across the river. It's a 10 minute walk from St. Peter's. And if you've been to Rome, you know this. I'm actually going to have an interactive map of it on my website because I want people to understand it. In the book itself, there's an actual map that I found that I also bought from 1925, a map of Rome. So you could see how close these three people live to each other, how close St. Peter's is to the ghetto. And you start to understand what a turbulent time fascism was because the Jews of Rome, um, were so assimilated into the culture, there wasn't anti-Semitism in fascism. And Mussolini founded fascism. His was the first fascist party. So that when it turns ultimately anti-Semitic, um, there's a double betrayal of the Jews of Rome. And that wrench, you know, that heartbreak, that, you know, the characters, the main characters, but also their parents during this novel, and its core too, I realize I'm going on on, but I'll just make this point, it's a little bit about identity it's a lot about identity. Because mm-hmm. and that goes to what you're saying. It even goes to a imposter syndrome. Who am I? What am I able to do? That's really the same thing. Who am I is what can I do. I always think about with that character. Characters are what they do. You don't go, he was a timid soul. You go, he's a little afraid to cross on the light, and you show that he won't cross the light. So that's right, that's the showing not telling. So as fascism rises. You see, well, who they are defines and who they see themselves as helps define whether they cleave to fascism or not. Mm -hmm. So, for example, fascism tells everybody that we're just a big business party and we're ultra national. Well, that appeals to a lot of uh, conservative minded Italians and Romans and that Jews join the fascist party in the same proportion as Gentiles do. Marco in the book is a young man and he is drawn to fascism because secretly he's dyslexic. Modern readers will know that. But he doesn't know that. Try to figure out what you are if you can't read anything in 1930s Rome. You think, I'm just stupid. All my classmates are smarter than I am. But when fascism comes along and says, "Um, wow, you are, you're the glory that was Rome. You're, you're Roman. Rome conquered the world. That blood flows in your veins. You are a son of Lazio. You go, yes, I am, damn it. And I have self-worth. And So it starts to affect identity, and obviously the Jews are going to undergo that question because Sandro is a Jewish-Italian, but when Mussolini decides to align with Hitler, he enacts all of these anti-Semitic laws that take, in in turn, it's like death by a thousand cuts, Hmm. the property from the Jews, their profession, their house, he strips them of their fascist party membership, and ultimately of their Italian citizenship. So Massimo, who's Sandro's father, has, who am I? Well, I'm a lawyer. I'm a fascist. Well, now I'm not a fa- I can't be a lawyer anymore. I'm not a fascist anymore. And now I'm not even Italian. Who am I? You know, Marco, who becomes a fascist, starts to waver He goes, am I my uniform? So they're all, and I think that why this matters is, what I realized in writing this book, amazingly enough, is that you can ask yourself who you are at any point in your life. I will tell you I'm 65. Well, I started with 63 when I started writing this book, going, who am I? Am I a thriller writer? Hmm. Well, wh- don't have any business writing a book that's historical fiction, except I don't think that's I gotta figure out who I am. And I guess now I'm a historical fiction writer. That's what we'll say in the flap copy, but I can tell you I'm just a lady writing stories in the suburbs, just like everybody listening to this. <laughs> just a lady facing a blank page. Like them
0: call, you know, right? Yeah, as are we all facing that. As are we
2: all. As are we all. <laughs> I love that. It's true.
0: Yeah. Well, the, as you you know, as you mentioned, there's there's quite a few moving parts to this historical fiction described as a sweeping and shattering epic of uh, historical fiction fueled by shocking true events. I wrote that. Yes, the tale of a, <laughs> a, the tale of a love triangle that unfolds in the heart of Rome in the yes. creeping shadow of fascism Keeping and.
2: Shadow. The
0: shadow. <laughs> uh, but as you put it, you know, love, loyalty, family and food, these are all elements, uh, you know, you know, obviously things that we are kind of all deal with throughout our lives. But this is Rome at its darkest hour. And uh, of course, having spent my fair share of uh, my youth in Italian restaurants, um, ah. I couldn't help but appreciate the, the culinary detail. Um, <laughs> and it did make my mouth water at times. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, of course, eternal. My job we...
2: is finished. Kilby,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have succeeded, um, but no, it it is a uh, something to behold, and and the work is fantastic. Congratulations. Um, the so book. Good. Thank
2: you so much.
0: Of course, um, the book is eternal. I will link to your uh, home base there here before we wrap up with your advice to fellow scribes. It is uh dot I'll link to that, and of course. Um, you're in all the places, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lisa Scott, Scottalini. Where, where else do you want to connect with listeners? Cause you're out on a virtual tour, I know, but probably by the time this publishes. Oh,
2: any, anywhere on social, it's all me all the time. I do my own socials. My, it's my great distraction. It's so <laughs> much than work. I love it. <laughs> Even awesome. if people write me bad things, I'm like, this is still better than writing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well, we appreciate your time, your wisdom. I know we, we have to let you go here shortly. Um, one quick one for you. If you could have dinner with any um, author from any era, aside from Philip Roth, of course. No, you can, or you can bring Philip along. Any author from any era to your favorite restaurant in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? Ah,
2: <laughs> you know, if I say the author, it's not going to be one that a lot of people will know, but I'll say it anyway. Elsa Morante was a writer, an Italian writer who I countered. It, yeah, it doesn't matter. But Elsa Morante was a wonderful writer of the 30s and the 40s. And I just, her stuff feels so fresh even today. She wrote a novel called History. And it's so fresh. And it's a lot about this time period. And I can't stop thinking about it. And honestly, I would take her back to that pizza place. It was right outside St. Peter's. And we would eat that GD pizza and I would cry my eyes out.
0: I <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Um. what? toppings would you have on that pizza
2: there's only one to me and it's just margarita you know i just want a little bit of cheese on top and some fresh basil i love it
0: of course and some san marzano tomatoes
2: yes yes stanley tucci tomatoes
0: (laughs) (laughs) have you seen the movie what's the stanley tucci movie about the two brothers in the uh
2: yeah big night big night love that movie I love that movie too. I love food and I love, I just love talking about food and movies. But I, you're right. This whole book's probably about food because I love food so much. <laughs> mm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's wrap up here with just maybe your, you know, pearl of wisdom to aspiring scribes. who might not have your level of access. Um, you know, just how, how to, how to persevere, how to keep going during these kind of interesting times.
2: Well, I think that's really, I'm happy to do that. You know, here's how I think of it. Um, I have a little image that I told I invented for myself and I want to share it. So you know how in all those old Gothic movies, like even that one with Nicole Kidman, she's running around the house and she's the others, and they always have a candle, and they're always cupping there's always dark, and they're cupping the candle with their hand because <laughs> it will blow out. And I always think that's what it's like to be us. Because you have to protect your candle. Nobody will protect your candle for you, and it is a fragile thing when you go through the dusty house, right? We have we're, we're grownups. We're all supposed to know what we want to do. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, now I want to be a writer. I was a lawyer, but now I want to be a writer. Um, or I was an insurance person. Whatever you were. Or maybe you want to write. The bottom line is you have to you have to protect that candle. That means it's okay to say to somebody, no, I don't want to go out to lunch. People say to me, you want to go to lunch? I go, listen, no. Is Thursday good? No, Thursday's not good. Ne- never is good. I'm not going out to lunch. I'm not really social. I'll socialize on at my times, but I can't take the middle of my day because I'm doing something I really love. And if I keep turning my back on it, it will, it'll blow out. So give yourself permission, even as an adult to to protect your candle, to say no to some things, because you're always saying yes to yourself. This is the mommy and me talking, but I can't help it. And you will get through this because we all have so many responsibilities, mortgages, and things we got to do. And demands on us that are not our agenda. But just remember the candle and put your hand in front and you can it will get you through the house. I love that. Thank you.
0: Perfect place to wrap up. Lisa, thank you for your time and wisdom. We wish you the best of luck and do come back and visit again.
2: Kelton, you are a sweetheart and thank you for making that so much fun.
1: <laughs> Elisabetta made up her mind. Marco Terizzi would be her first kiss. She watched him doing bicycle tricks by the river, riding on his back tire, his head thrown back in laughter, his teeth white against his tanned face. His thick, dark hair shone with pomade in the sun, and his legs were knotted with muscles inside the baggy shorts of his uniform. He rode with joy and athleticism, achieving a masculine grace. Marco Terizzi had sprezzatura. A rare and effortless charm that made him irresistible. Elisabetta couldn't take her eyes from him, and neither could the others. They had grown up together, but somewhere along the line he had gone from boyhood to manhood, from Marco to Marco. That he was terribly handsome there could be no doubt. He had large walnut brown eyes, a strong nose, a square jaw, and a broad neck marked by a prominent Adam's apple. He was the most popular boy in their class, and everything about him seemed more vivid than everyone else. Even now, the sun drenched him in gold, as if nature herself gilded him. Elisabetta wondered what it would be like to kiss him. She guessed it would be exciting, even delirious, like biting into a ripe tomato and letting its juices run down her chin. She had never kissed a boy, though she was already 15 years old, and at night she practiced kissing on her pillow. Her tabby cat, Rico, with whom she slept, had grown accustomed to her routine, as cats endure the silliness of young girls. Elisabetta had no idea how to make Marco think of her as more than a friend. She usually achieved what she set her mind to, getting good grades and such. But this was different. She was too blunt to flirt. She lacked feminine wiles. She had been a maschiaccio, a tomboy when she was little, which was how she had grown close with Marco. She was trying to become more womanly, but she still didn't wear a brazier. Her mother said she didn't need one, but the other girls made fun of her, talking behind their hands. Elisabetta, help, I'll drown. Marco raced toward the river, and she was about to call to him but stopped herself. She had read in a female advice column that denying men the attention they craved drove them mad with desire. So she ignored him, while the other girls responded. Marco, no, Livia called back. Marco, be careful, Angela gasped. The boys waited to see if calamity befell Marco, but he cranked the handlebars, veering away from the river's edge. They laughed and returned to their textbooks, spread out on the grass. They were doing homework, having come from their Balilla meeting, the party's compulsory youth group. They all wore their uniforms, the boys in their black shirts and gray shorts, and the girls in white muslin shirts and black skirts. This quiet spot on the river bank, just north of the Ponte Palatino, had become a hangout of her classmates after school, though Elisabetta typically sat with Marco or Sandro apart from the other girls. Somehow, she had missed her chance to become their girlfriend, and it was too late now, for they rebuffed her overtures. Perhaps they had judged her as preferring the boys, which wasn't true. And she would have loved to have had a good girlfriend. Whatever the reason, Angela and the other girls kept her at a distance, and she tried not to let it bother her. Look, Beta, Marco called again, using her childhood nickname. Use my proper name. Elisabetta called back from behind her newspaper. She did prefer her full name, as she hoped to become a journalist some day. She practiced her byline at night, too, by Elisabetta d'Orfeo. Elisabetta, Marco rode over, sliding to a stop on the grass. Hop on my handlebars. Let's go for a ride. No, I'm reading. Elisabetta hid her smile behind the newspaper. Angela rose, brushing grass from her skirt. Marco, I'll go. Take me. Okay. Marco extended his hand. Angela clambered onto his handlebars, and the two rode off together.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.